Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so this week um, I have a podcast up with the three apostates. We managed to work out another episode of that, which was quite a bit of fun, and I also put up a review this last week of the A&E's new Cults and Extreme Beliefs. So if you haven't checked that out, go ahead and do so. It's a short video. Uh, just gives some of my thoughts, and I know not everybody's going to agree with me about all of them, but I thought I um, it's three episodes deep now on A&E, and I thought I would give a little bit of feedback on what I thought as a... I guess cult expert <laughs> on their show and what they're doing with it, um, and uh, and and I am overall just a spoiler alert. I'm pretty happy with it, okay. Uh, but I did have some suggestions that I thought might improve the show some more. So anyway, you can check that out. Um, otherwise, I think we've got some really good questions this week. So let's go ahead and get right to them. Nick C, what's the process by which a Sea Org member is condemned to the RPF? In other words, what is the Sea Org's equivalent of trial, conviction, and sentencing? In a related vein, what has to happen in order for a person on the RPF to be de deemed ready to graduate? Hey Nick, thanks for the question. Uh, short question, big answer. Um, so I, I can't do a whole rundown on the entire RPF, but I'll give you some, some basic ideas here of how this works. Um, there are a few routes onto the RPF. Um, I only, in my entire time in the Sea Org, ever saw one person who tried to put themselves on the RPF. Now, the RPF, I should say, is the Rehabilitation Project Force, and it is a sort of a reconditioning or re-education camp within the Sea Organization. It is not for public Scientologists. It is not for staff Scientologists. It is only for the Sea Org. It is one of the single most abusive programs that, the, that Scientology or L. Ron Hubbard ever put together. It's been around since the 1970s when L. Ron Hubbard was sailing around on his boats. That was where it started. It has gone through many iterations. Uh, the RPF of the 19, early 1970s is not the same as the RPF of the late 1970s. It's not the same as what happened in the 80s or the 90s. It's, it's changed over the years and gone through various uh, iterations. I did the RPF from 2004 to 2008. Some in that time period, it took me three years and three months to get through it. Eventually, I plan on writing a book about the entire program because it is that extensive. There are a number of issues Hubbard wrote and others have written about the RPF and how it's supposed to be run and how it's conducted and how you get off the program. So let me give you the quick rundown here. Uh, like I said, there was only one person who ever tried to put themselves on the RPF and they got, they were kind of, you know, no, that's not, that's not what you need. And, you know, they got some other ethics handling and, and went and did some other things. Um, the RPF is the most severe form of punishment or discipline that you can receive in the Sea Org, uh, short of being, you know, declared a suppressive person or kicked out of the Sea Org entirely. It is viewed as a chance at redemption or rehabilitation. Uh, you are there because you have uh, committed some act or acts which are considered treasonous to the Sea Org. Uh, and that means you've, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, but rather than just kick you to the curb or beat you or throw you out, um, and I didn't say beat you, I said beach 
you. Uh, beaching is a is when they just kind of throw you on the beach. When back in the day, when people were on ships in the Sea Org, they just leave you on the beach. Uh, and in the Sea Org now, the equivalent of that is being kicked out. Rather than do that, they give you a chance to you know redeem yourself. So um, the usual route onto the onto the RPF is through what's called a committee of evidence, which is a supposed to be a fact finding body. It's a, it's the most uh, serious, you know, justice action that can be taken on a person in Scientology. Uh, but the committee of evidence is usually three to five people who are gathered together, go over reports and evidence, interview uh, interested parties and the person who is named in the committee of evidence who is under investigation. And the committee is supposed to go over all the facts and come up with recommendations to determine what to do with this person in order to deal with whatever the problem was. A committee of evidence doesn't just, it, it, it's a whole thing in itself and I could do a whole video on just that, but basically the committee of evidence is not necessarily supposed to presuppose that you're guilty. You actually have a series of charges against the Scientology ethics codes that our, our person is, is uh, said to be guilty of and the Committee of Evidence investigates and determines whether, it's, whether the person is guilty or innocent. And in their findings, they actually lay out step by step each of the Justice Code violations and whether the person is guilty or innocent, and whether the person pled guilty or innocent during the committee itself. So you might have, you know, the, the charge might be theft, and the committee might write in the findings and recommendations, they might write, well, we interviewed the person, you know, here are all the circumstances of the theft. We interviewed Joe Blow. He said he was innocent, and here are the specifics of why he said that. But we found he was guilty. Here's what we found. And now all this is supposed to be written down so anybody can review the findings and recommendations and see what the actual facts of the situation are and why it was, uh, why the final recommendations of the committee are what they are. The committee's findings can be quite heavy. They can Im impose amends projects of hundreds of hours in length. They can order a person to sec checking. They can kick a person out of the Sea Org. They can dismiss a person from staff. Because committees of evidence are not just Sea Org actions. A committee of evidence can be done on a public Scientologist, a staff member, or a Sea Org member. Uh, they, it, it, it's a, it, it happens at all levels of Scientology, from the city level offices all the way up to the highest levels of the Sea Org. So let's say you find yourself in a lot of trouble, and I'll give you a, uh, an example of this. Um, there, was, there were a couple people who ended up being RPF'd because there was an event, and at that Scientology event, it was a recorded, pre-recorded event, and David Miscavige was speaking uh, on a video monitor, and this was in Los Angeles. There were hundreds of people in attendance. And the sound got funky and started popping in and out. And David Miscavige, therefore, was, you know, being shown in this, in this pre-recorded message as sometimes you could hear him and sometimes you couldn't. And the screen was flashing and it was, it was a huge problem. And this didn't just happen for a couple seconds. This went on and on. It was painful. And, um, and it ruined, or, you know, this whole chunk of the event. Senior Sea Org officers in the, in the Commodore's Messenger Org started investigating to find out what the hell was going on, and they found out that the uh, recording had not been previewed by the person who was supposed to do it before the event started, and that person got busted. 
the other person who was responsible for all the electronic connections, and the, the, he's an, he was an electrician, he also got busted. And I think there was somebody else who also got wrangled into that who did setup of the speakers or something. So um, all of those people were directly ordered to the RPF by the CMO messengers that day. Like, boom, they were gone. Uh, so it can happen that quickly. A very senior uh, uh, Commodore's messenger can directly order somebody to the RPF. David Miscavige could just say, hey, you're gone, you know, you're gone. A missionaire could do that theoretically, although I never actually saw that. Well, I saw that happen one time, but it was also the person who was heading up the Sea Org mission was also a Commodore's messenger. So generally speaking, it takes very senior, you know, it takes a senior person in Scientology to be able to just order somebody to the RPF. I was, I was never in a position where that was going to, um, you know, my senior, when I was in management, did not have that power. Uh, nobody in, at my level had, that, had the power to just order somebody to the RPF. I went to the RPF via a COMEV, a Committee of Evidence. So that's how you get there. Um, and then when you're there, you have an extensive program of actions to get through in order to rehabilitate you. There's all the physical labor, which takes the majority of your day, but five hours of the day is spent on, re, on uh, what's called redemption time. And you twin up with another RPFer, you're, you're buddied up with them, and you get each other through the program. And uh, there's a lot to the program. I'm not going to get into all the steps of it right now because it's, it's extensive. And like I said, I'm literally, literally going to write an entire book about it. But to graduate the RPF, you have to satisfy all the requirements. And that includes extensive security checking on every aspect of your life across all, in Scientology terminology, across all eight dynamics. And uh, the first dynamic is yourself. So you get sec checked on yourself. You get sec checked on the this, this set on sex and family and on the on groups and you know et cetera et cetera all the way out to literally being sex checked on spirits and God and, and religion and, and this sort of thing uh, so there it's an ex, it's an extensive series of questions hundreds of them it takes months just to get through that if not years plus there's other case handlings that are individually tailored for each person who goes to the RPF to deal with uh, why they ended up on the RPF in the first place. For example, those people who messed up on the stage and on the um, event would be, would be sec-checked and audited uh, Scientology style on uh, evil purposes towards David Miscavige uh, because they messed up David Miscavige's speech, right? Uh, and on events and on electronics and on setting things up and anything having to do with their job that they didn't understand or purposefully messed up on or purposefully didn't know what they were doing and but they went ahead and did it anyway. You know, all those kind of things. Every one of those things, it's all put under a microscope and you are made to confess anything and everything you did wrong across all of this, uh, you know, activity. That is all verified as having been completed before you're allowed to graduate. Uh, there are also usually additional actions. I've done a, another video on what's called the Truth Rundown, which is um, an ex a very deep effort at mind control in Scientology. Probably the most invasive and thought-reforming technique Scientology has. Uh, and check out the video on it because I explain all of it in very much in, in a lot of detail. 
Um, so that action, the truth rundown, is usually done on a person when they're on the RPF after they've done all that sec checking. I received it. I did it on two other people uh, during the course of the time that I was on the RPF. Finally, there is what's called the final assessment. And this has not always existed. Like I said, this was only when I was on the RPF. And the final assessment has been around in the, in the late 90s through the 2000s. And if the RPF is still going on anywhere in the world, then they're, I'm sure they're still doing this. The final assessment is an action done on the e-meter where a person is asked questions without necessarily being uh, expected to respond or answer to the questions. The, the meter is being asked the questions. And I think there were about 18 or 19 questions. And during the assessment, when the questions are being asked, there can't be any slightest reaction on the needle of the e-meter that would indicate that something's wrong or off about any of those questions. All of the questions on the final assessment have to do with whether you have evil intentions, evil purposes, or harmful intentions or desires towards Scientology, senior Scientology executives, David Miscavige in particular, L. Ron Hubbard in particular, uh, or whether you plan, you know, whether you feel you've gotten away with anything. I think there's a couple questions about that on the RPF, uh, whether you, you know, uh, successfully withheld anything. So this assessment is, is gone through on the e-meter, and if anything comes up, any little flutter of anything on the needle, this, this is the needle on the e-meter, uh, tick, 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 you know, or reads or responds in some fashion, then the auditor who's running the e-meter is expected to follow up with the person and go, okay, what's going on with this question? Do you have an evil intention towards David Miscavige, for example? And the person is then made to look and get an answer to that question, and it's run through the standard Scientology sec-checking false purpose rundown procedure, uh, which I explain in the Truth Rundown video. So again, you can check that out if you're curious about the details of it. And you have to go through that assessment over and over and over again until it's a clean assessment. No reactions on any of the questions. And it's all done on video. This video and the worksheets and the folder and all of the handlings that the person has done throughout the entire RPF program, which is usually boxes of stuff, okay? This is, this is like those, when you submit your graduation, uh, what's called a CSW, completed staff work, a, 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 an application, let's say, to graduate, it's a box. It's got your pre-clear folder in it, it's got your ethics file in it, it's got any other reports and, and a whole compendium of, of summarization of everything that you did while you were on the RPF. It takes weeks to put this stuff together. The each twin, when you're twinned up with somebody else, you put your twins package together. It's called a, the graduation box or graduation CSW. And your twin puts yours together because your twin is responsible for getting you through the program, you're responsible for getting your twin through the program. So this, you know, this box is put together, the box goes to a senior technical person on the, um, for the, the base that you're on. If you were at FLAG, it would be the senior case supervisor for the FLAG land base in Clearwater. Just some technical terminology there, but it's basically the senior technical person. 
overseeing all of the auditing, delivery, and all that sort of thing on the base. In the western United States, where I was, in, in Los Angeles, at the big blue buildings, it was the senior case supervisor for the western United States. That's who the box went to. Once he approves it, he has to watch the video. He has to make sure that there were no reactions on that final assessment. He then goes through all the paperwork and makes sure that it's all, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Then it goes to um, a Senior CS International, which is up at the International Base. The box literally physically is taken to the Gold Base uh, in San Jacinto, California. Now, I don't know that Ray Midoff, who was the last person on post as the Senior CS International, is still there or still doing that job, but somebody has to look at that box from, from that post and, again, watch the video, go through all the paperwork, make sure everything is good, and if it's all good, then the box comes back down to the RTC representative, the Religious Technology Center representative, for the base. They go through the whole thing, make sure everything is good, and if it's all good, then they sign it off, the box comes back, and you're done. Now, if there's something wrong, if any of these people, any way along the line, see that there was a reaction on the assessment, or there's something weird about the paperwork, or something wasn't handled the way it was supposed to be as far as they're concerned, that box comes back with a reject. And it's written out what the reject is, and the person then has to do a handling on that. The handling is done, everything is put back together, and it goes back through those people again. And all of them have to approve that every step of the program was completed, and that you are a shining, glittering product of Scientology, and you're ready to get back into work as a Sea Org member. That's how it goes. And um, when I did mine, the approval line took months. Uh, I think it was about a four-month process for us to uh, go from having a clean final assessment to actually graduating, and that was average, uh, maybe slightly faster than average. I have seen people waiting for their graduation CSW for six months uh, because while the boxes are going through these people, these people who the boxes are going to have lots of other things to do. And the RPF are always the last priority for anybody. So you're always at the bottom of the stack. So you're going to be waiting. There's no, there's no fast tracking an RPF CSW unless some senior person has their eye on that RPFer and wants them done right away, in which case it might get expedited. But RTC very, very rarely could care less, you know, couldn't care less about people who are on the RPF. So it tends to take a while. I actually maybe lucked out a little bit because my twin on the RPF, her name was Galen, she was the mother of the RTC person at the base at the time uh, at, in Los Angeles. Uh, so her daughter, I don't think, was the one who actually looked at the CSW because there would have been a little bit of a conflict of interest there. But I think she had a little bit of interest in getting her mother off the RPF. So 
Uh, so I think that was expedited a little bit more than your average bear, but it still took us months to get done. So that's kind of basically the process. There's lots more details to this whole thing. So of course you guys can ask me any other questions you want about it. Um, you know, I know it's, I'm going to, you know, kind of piecemeal all of this information about the RPF in these critical Q&A videos because, you know, it would be a very, very extensive process for me to even make one video just dedicated to the RPF, which is why I realized I, I really just need to write a book about it. So, um, so I've got a plan on how that's going to happen, but it's going to be a while. And uh, so in the meantime, I'm, I'm answering these questions as best I can. I hope that answers your question, Nick. If not, uh, or if you still have any details about this you'd like to know, just let me know. Cat, I have started listening to a fun podcast by Dax Shepard called Armchair Expert. He just did an episode, number 20, with Erica Christensen, current Scientologist, because they did the show Parenthood together. Dax sees himself as an open-minded intellectual with a talent to argue all sides of an issue. I'm dying to get your take on this particular podcast with Erica because she speaks of her Scientology views and I would love your take on the angle she uses and Dak's handling of the topic. Thanks for this question, Kat. And I actually listened to the uh, whole section on Scientology that they were talking about. It was a, it's a pretty long podcast, but they didn't talk about Scientology the whole time, so I just listened to that part. And here's my critique of that. I was not impressed, and obviously I'm not going to be because I'm a critic of Scientology and I know all about it. So when people whitewash it and present its, you know, only its good side or its, you know, good appearing face, I'm going to have something to say about that. Uh, here's my first critique, though, of Dax Shepard himself. Now, he's an actor, entertainer. I don't know what his educational background is. I don't know that it really matters. I mean, I'm only a high school graduate, so I don't, you know, necessarily have to put a whole lot into, you know, judging somebody's intellect based on just their education. But Dax did this. He said, I took notes on this, and he said at the beginning that he wanted to come at various subjects with a mentality or, or an idea of neutrality and not be judgy or putting judgment on, uh, you know, when he was asking questions about Scientology, for example. And obviously he was setting up his podcast to make it sound like he was going to, um, you know, be neutral about the subject, which he then proceeded to do anything but be neutral. And that's where I had a bit of a problem with that because I feel he was being a bit intellectually dishonest. I come out and tell you straight up, I am biased about Scientology. I do not claim objectivity about this subject. I, you know, was abused by Scientology and, and uh, experienced a number of years of abuse at, at Scientology's hands. There's no way I could be unbiased about it. Well, similarly, Dak Shepard has, as he said in the podcast, he has 12 friends who are Scientologists, and Erica Christensen is one of them. He was on a TV show with her. They hang out. They've had conversations about Scientology, and it was very, very clear, almost from the get-go, that he was doing most of the apologetics for Scientology instead of letting her do it. And I was a little surprised and, frankly, very disappointed that he would set up being this non-judgmental, objective podcaster and then proceed to explain to all the viewers how Scientology works in his own words and why it is that it's a good thing. I was like, what? What are you doing, man? Let me give you a couple examples. He 
said that aliens are more plausible than Christian beliefs of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's not any crazier than that. Well, I guess. I mean, yes, that's that's objectively true, but it's you know this word aliens gets connected with Scientology, and there's a lot more to it than just aliens. Scientologists don't just believe in UFOs or the probability of life outside of planet Earth. That's a wide, widely held belief and mathematically almost a certainty that there's life beyond planet Earth here in our galaxy and in our universe. That's not the controversial point about Scientology, but Dax Shepard makes it out that it is. He's literally, you know, getting, he, he can't explain it fast enough how, how it's uh, acceptable to believe in aliens because that's not any stranger than believing in Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Well, okay. Why doesn't he let his guest explain that? She's the one who's actually supposed to be explaining her position. Uh, then we have um, how, oh yeah, then he, then he talks about how you have to pay for Scientology and how that's not really any different than tithing. Again, basically explaining his ignorance of the topic because Scientology demands far more money from its parishioners than 10% of, of their income through tithing. So to make that comparison, it's a completely false equivalency. And he was doing all this before Erica even came on and started talking. Um, oh, then, then he had the gall. He says, uh, he talks about how Scientology has been accused of having slave labor and people who work for the church for nothing. And he then again makes a false equivalency that this is uh, how, you know, in, in Christianity they have choir boys and in Catholic church they have volunteers and, you know, like people who sing in the choir and this sort of thing. Like, uh, right from the get-go, I'm thinking, do you have any idea what you're actually talking about? Because the things you're saying here are not equivalent in any way. The people who work for the Sea Org are 24-7. And they're getting paid $45 a week, max. That is not in any way comparable to somebody who comes in and sings in a choir. I, I don't even know where this guy gets off making comparisons like that. It's, it, and I'm not, I don't have a problem with Dax Shepard as an individual. It's just that he's going to present himself as an intellectual or as somebody who actually has done some study of his topic. Well, I know this subject. So when he starts saying things like that, I can immediately dismiss his supposed knowledge of the topic because it's clear he doesn't know anything. All right, so those are just some of the examples of this. Now, once he actually did start talking to Erica and he gave her a chance to start explaining it, it was just softball question after softball question. Very, very safe, very, very easy for her. And she's a friend of his, so of course it was. If this is representative of his podcast, then he's really just having friendly conversations on his podcast with his friends. And that's fine. That's, I got no problem with that. I do have a problem with representing that as being an objective intellectual exercise because that's not what it is. And that's why you might get a little bit of like, err from me on this because I watched this and I listened to this and I just thought, this is a joke. Basically, Erica got away with delivering lines about how the surface level 
services that are offered in Scientology, the lower level services that we talk about all the time on the show, uh, are friendly, are helpful, are useful in life. She gave a couple examples. They talked about clearing words uh, in dictionaries and how useful that is. Erica confirmed that she's never taken drugs. She's not a drug user. She wants uh, her life to be drug free because she wants her head to be clear. Personal choice for her, no problem whatsoever. Um, but obviously a Scientology back position. Scientology is you know, very anti-drug of any kind. Yet, while making that point, they totally brushed off the fact that Scientologists have no problem drinking alcohol, one of the most abused and harmful drugs on the planet. So sure, Scientology's anti-drug, except when they're not. A little bit uh, hypocritical, really. Uh, and by the way, some Scientologists uh, drink to excess, uh, far, far in excess. I knew a few Scientologists who were uh, absolutely alcoholics. Um, she talked about the Success Through Communications course. She talked about um, some other Scientology basic information, which I have always referred to as the window dressing of Scientology. It, it looks good, it's, it seems light and fluffy and very nice, and it draws you in, it attracts you to the subject, sounds like it makes sense, what could be the harm in that? And, uh, and they went over all of that sort of thing. Dax also kept making comparisons to AA. Uh, when AA is very much not like Scientology. However, he did, he did make a point, and then probably the only good point that he made through the whole interview, that many people have compared AA to a cult or a destructive cult. I actually did a podcast on that exact subject with somebody who had been a former AA member, and we determined that basically AA is not really a destructive cult. Not, not really. It doesn't really fit all the characteristics of it. Although some groups who meet as AA groups can be very cult-like if you look at the big picture of it and you look at what it's doing in the 12-step program that's not a destructive cult program. So all in all there were no hard questions everything was very softballed Dax was basically you know sort of just getting all over himself to make Erica uh, to present her in the best possible light and to not um, dig in at all about anything controversial about it. And Erica's responses were just pat, you know, this is what we drill when we're as a celebrity Scientologist. And I have nothing against Erica Christensen personally. She is just another Scientologist, second generation, by the way, who got involved when she, according to her, when she was young, when she was about 12 years old, she said she started taking the classes. I don't think 12 years old is an age where judgment has fully set in, and clearly she was influenced by her parents uh, in her decisions, even though she claims that she was not. But her upbringing was very much like mine. Uh, I guess her parents were a little, you know, kind of backed off about enforcing it on her. They fed it to her gradually. She grew up with the terminology. So I know exactly where her head is at, and I know exactly how she got involved, and how you take one step after another after another, and before you know it, you're, it's your life philosophy, and you don't know any other way. What I was disappointed by were her answers regarding the Going Clear documentary and how she just sort of poo-pooed it, said she had no need or reason to look at anything critical of the church, and basically the logic behind her reasoning was, if I haven't seen anything bad or wrong in my experience with Scientology, then there is nothing bad or wrong with Scientology. 
that is a tremendously gigantic logical fallacy and uh, very, very stupid thinking because obviously there's tons wrong with Scientology and if you're only going to look at your own experience of something and think that that is the broadly applicable experience that applies to everybody, well, you're clearly going to be wrong 100% of the time. So that's where Erica Christensen's head is at. Like I said, I don't have anything against her personally. She's just another Scientologist dupe, and that's how she, exactly how she sounded on Dax Shepard's podcast. I doubt I'll be listening to Dax Shepard again because, as I've made it pretty clear here, I wasn't too impressed with his intellectual chops or his ability to question his guests on anything like real hard questions about their life or their life experience or what they're involved in. So that's my take on that. Ben. Chris, our mutual love of tacos inspired this medical question. If a clear vacations in Mexico, drinks the water, then spends the next week in the bathroom, how does the church respond? To be serious, are all routine medical problems, the common cold, food poisoning, migraines, Montezuma's revenge, quote unquote, treated as spiritual transgressions? If a chef at a resort in Baja doesn't wash his hands properly, are you spending the next few months on the e-meter handing over thousands of dollars to find the true cause of your stomach bug? Thanks and keep up the good work. No, no, not really. Um, you know, I've talked about the various levels of PTS handling before. Uh, let me just answer this briefly by saying that, okay, PTSness or PTS is, stands for potential trouble source and indicates somebody who has, excuse me, been connected to a suppressive person in some fashion. I've explained this before many, many times. So, there are levels or degrees of how to address a PTS condition. If a person gets sick or is having accidents or you know, gets a cold or something like that or has some unfortunate circumstance happen to them, then they'll probably be labeled PTS by the church and that label will stick until the person does some kind of handling and resolves the situation to their satisfaction and the satisfaction of the ethics officer. This is usually done in ethics. This is not usually an audited thing. It doesn't usually require thousands of dollars of audited handlings uh, in an auditing session. Instead, you go to the ethics officer and the first level of handling will be what's called a 10 AUG handling from the date 10 August, I think 1972 or something is when the bulletin on this was written by Hubbard. And it's a sequence of steps that are, that, that are done off the meter very informally to just find out, okay, who's the suppressive person in your life and what's going on, right? And if the person can spot it right there, oh yeah, it's, you know, Joe Schmo, he gave me a hard time at work and I don't like the guy and he's, and he's, and he's wrangling to get, you know, my job out from under me or something. Good, we found the suppressive person. What's the handling going to be? Yeah, I'm going to go talk to my boss and da-da-da-da-da, dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. And great, it's handled, it's done, and that's, we're, we're finished. That's the 10 AUG handling, and um, usually the 10 AUG handling goes for an earlier time in your life when there was some kind of suppression on your lines, though. It's not just the guy at your work now. He's usually a re-stimulator, a person who reminds you of somebody earlier, and the 10 AUG tries to go earlier to, you know, maybe some childhood friend or, or enemy or frenemy or somebody you were connected to in the past 
who might have somehow reappeared in your life now through some way. Maybe you went to a class reunion. Maybe the guy called you up out of the blue. Maybe you've never disconnected from him. Maybe he's always been around. Whatever the circumstance, you want to find you know, who the suppressive is, figure out some kind of handling for it that will make it so that the person's not suppressive to you now, and that's it. And if that can get handled and we're all resolved and you, you, know, you get over the cold, because of course this sort of thing takes time. So you go in and get the interview, you do the handling, and by the time you're done, you're over your, you're over your illness, right? Or you're healed from your accident, or the circumstances of your life have changed and you're not under suppression anymore. So that's usually how it's done. It's only when that doesn't work and the person continues to manifest problems, illness, injury, you know, this sort of thing, that they will do further levels of PTS handling. And I am positive I've laid this out in earlier um, Q&A videos and in earlier videos that I've done. So you can do a search for those on my website. There is a page called um, Critical Q&A Questions on my blog. And it's all the questions I've been asked all laid out in sequence. And you can just do a control S search on that page. And I also did put a search box on my blog, so you can utilize that too and see what else I might have said about this. But that's basically how it works. If, um, if somebody's determined, you know, somebody's got a chronic illness, got a real problem, keeps having issues, then they're probably going to get to the level where they're going to need to get go from the ethics section over to the auditing section, and they're going to start getting auditing on their PTS condition, and that's going to cost them thousands of dollars to do. So that's kind of how that works. Robert Black. Dynetics initially gained popularity as a self-help movement, and the lost leader courses that are still offered on problem-solving and self-improvement to entice potential new members continue to receive positive comments from those who have participated in them, except the widely discredited personality test. I share the opinion of others that the religion road that it went down was LRH's spectacularly successful attempt to monetize his ideas. Do you think that, should the organization have just acted as a problem-solving institution and stuck to offering these entry-level courses, that it could have survived and thrived? If yes, as a one-time insider, how do you think that they could have done this? Well, it's interesting, you know, because um, I actually did a video some time ago, I think it's called An Open Letter to David Miscavige, where I recommended that they drop all the high-level stuff and just deliver lower-level services if they really wanted to uh, keep Scientology going. Because, you know, from the level of clear above, all the OT levels and the Xenu stuff and the body thetans and all that confidential stuff in Scientology is just for the birds. It's, it's ridiculous. But the lower level stuff, you know, yeah, sometimes that's helped people out, helped them to organize their life, helped them communicate better, that sort of thing. Which, by the way, for the 10,000th time, is not an endorsement of Scientology at all. It is, it, you know, if you're, in for, if you're into Scientology for a penny, you're in for a pound. And they're going to stay on you, and they're going to keep on you, and they're going to want all your money. It's kind of, just kind of imagine, a, a, you know, a, a, a cloud of locusts coming into your life. That's what you invite into your life when you go into a Church of Scientology. So you want to stay away from these guys. But if they were to cut it back to just the lower level services as a self-help group and took all the religion out of it, all the Thetan stuff out of it, sure, 
it'd be fine. You know, it wouldn't be abusive. They wouldn't have the Sea Org. They wouldn't have OSA. They wouldn't have all of that, all those trappings and mechanics and, and abusive framework that Scientology creates as a totalitarian high control group. So that all, if all of that was stripped off of it and you just took it back down to those basic introductory level courses, you know, it really wouldn't be a whole lot different from the Forum or EST or, you know, these other more mostly harmless groups. I mean, the Forum and EST, these are destructive cults too, but they're, they're a little less degree than Scientology from what I know. And if I'm wrong, fine. But I'm just trying to make a statement that it's, it would be much better than what Scientology is in its current form. I, and I don't mean to talk down to anybody. I just get challenged on this stuff all the time. And it's just like, ugh. Stay away from Scientology, it's bad, right? So if I say anything good about it, then immediately people are on me about it, and I'm just like, okay guys, no, I, I don't, I'm not endorsing it, but yes, if you were to strip all that stuff, stuff off, then it would probably be something approach that could be more considered a normal thing and not a destructive cult thing. Um, and it would probably, now I, I am not any expert on this yet, but I will say that it would probably resemble something more like uh, form or uh, even Nexium at its lowest levels, which I, I understand was uh, presented as something that would help you with your work and with, you know, at, at your job. That's kind of how Scientology would sort of be presenting itself if it hadn't gotten into all this other goofy stuff. So um, sure, you know, they could survive and thrive and do fine with that because it wouldn't be abusive. Anyway, I know I went on a little bit of a roll there, but I hope all that kind of adds up to an answer that makes sense. Uh, let me know. Thanks, uh, thanks for asking. When Queen rocks, it is time to roll right into our flash answers. 654. Do you know the whereabouts of your ex-wife? I'm guessing she's still in? Yep, she's still in. She is remarried to somebody that I knew when I was in the Sea Org, and I wish her all the best, and I hope that eventually she gets out of Scientology, but, you know, I'm not keeping tabs on her. I actually happened to find that out completely by accident. Uh, somebody else who knew somebody else who knew somebody else happened to relay that information to me. Um, so that's how I know that. DA. Since Scientologists believe in reincarnation, or whatever term they use for rebirth, I wonder what would happen if the church, or a trusted member of the church acting as a private business, were to offer members the opportunity to hand over their assets before they die, and give them a secret password to remember, so that after they die and they are reborn, they can come back and retrieve their assets from their previous life. Would this be an interesting way, accidentally, to test the beliefs of Scientologists, i.e., do they trust the church enough to hand over all their money before they die, knowing, quote-unquote, they will get it back in a future life? Thanks. Okay, quite honestly, I don't think even Scientologists are stupid enough to fall for that much of a con. I mean, that would be awesomely bold, uh, but really pretty low to take advantage of people who have those kind of beliefs that way. Uh, anyway, no, I don't think any Scientologists would ever do that. I've certainly never heard of anything like it, and I think if somebody tried, the church would probably come down on them like a ton of bricks. Vicki Lewis. Being from the UK and recently seen in the news that Scientology has just opened two new orgs in Ireland and Birmingham, as well as the St. Hill, I'm aware they don't have tax-exempt status here in the UK. 
That being the case, does that make them open to being investigated and prosecuted by the law here for the many crimes that go on in the Sea Org? Or at least called out for obviously being a money-making scam rather than a religion? Yeah, absolutely. It, it totally does. And in fact, that's how most of the people in Ireland, I think, are dealing with Scientology right now. And the UK's, you know, sometimes taking a fairly dim view of it as well. The problem with prosecuting Scientology isn't the fact that they're doing crimes. It's getting existing Scientologists to step up who are still in to go make complaints to the police about the crimes that are committed against them. That's the hard part. It's not proving that Scientology, you know, does bad things because we got plenty of ex-members who say that, but that's just hearsay evidence. There's, you have to have tangible physical evidence or present time complaints that haven't gone beyond the statute of limitations. And that's the big problem with getting Scientology in a lot of legal trouble, in addition to the fact that Scientology has an unlimited re reservoir of funds to use to fight legal battles. So that also tends to prohibit any um, individual's ability to bring a case against Scientology civilly or criminally. Okay, guys, that's the show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching. I really appreciate your viewership. If you haven't, um, go ahead and subscribe to my channel and give me a like. Uh, and leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below. I will see all of it. Uh, whether it's good, bad, or sideways, go ahead and leave it there. I love hearing from you guys. And, of course, if you have any questions, leave them there for me. Thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.